2: That is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And I've
0: long thought that education is essential for the dignity of humanity. Well, America is all about rugged individualism, is it not? We each have the ability to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, right? All we need is grit. The only problem with that conventional wisdom is that it's completely wrong. It's a myth, and like so many myths, great harm often results from its widespread acceptance. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Live, Linda Nathan, spent 14 years as a founder and co-headmaster of Boston Arts Academy, Boston's only public high school for the visual and performing arts. Uh, And uh, Linda Nathan began every year with a promise to the freshman class. All of them would graduate and continue on to either college or a career. After stepping down in 2014, Linda Nathan began a deep interrogation of that promise. She felt troubled that she may have promoted a false myth about equality and opportunity, one that pushed the responsibility for success onto her students' shoulders without acknowledging the structural inequities they would face as they pursued their lives after high school. Now in her new book, Linda Nathan writes, When grit isn't enough, a high school principal examines how poverty and inequality thwart the college-for-all promise. Nathan confronts long-held assumptions about college access and takes a sobering look at how current practices and policies actually serve to push poor and first-generation students not onto but off the college track. She found that the determined pursuit of a college degree instead left too many of her students with impossibly huge debt and frustratingly limited paths to middle class lives. She discovered much of great relevance along her journey, including how career and technical education done well might provide a viable alternative to a four year degree. Linda Nathan, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. What was your purpose in writing this book, and how did it come to be written? And part of that question is the word grit. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all,
1: thank you so much for having me on your show, and you did a fabulous summary <laughs> of what my purpose was. Um, I think that, you know, after working in the Boston Public Schools for 38 years, and uh, I was a you know very seasoned high school principal, and, sent many, many kids on to college, but when I stepped down, I wanted to understand the experience that my alumni were having. You know, we boast about our uh, rate of kids going on to college. That's what, you know, many high schools are measured against, and Boston Arts Academy does very, very well, well well above the national average. But I wanted to, and that's an urban school, so mm-hmm. the fact that we're doing so well above a national ab- average and an urban school is even more remarkable. But I wanted to understand the experience of kids who went to college and what was going on for them, those that went and had to drop out for various reasons, what were those reasons and why. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to understand those who never went on to college. Um, So that was really my purpose, was to just get a sense of how our young people were faring in this world. because. Boston Arts Academy is a selective high school. It's an audition-based high school. So in some respects, our kids already come in with some clarity and passion about Mm. what they hope to do next or what they're good at. And so in some ways, their stories are even more poignant because they're, if you will, not the -the run-of-the-mill kids. So a little bit my purpose was to share their stories and to not have their stories end up being... It's just your fault because you weren't gritty enough you know this thing about grit and pulling yourself up by your bootstrap is so much of the way our society has been um, I want to say mythologized yes um, but it it's isn't a myth. it isn't you you must have persistence and you must have grit to do anything in life but it often isn't enough
0: yeah for sure and and so many people. You know, in times of high unemployment, end up blaming themselves. And I did a right. show a few years right. ago on that, and it's a lot bigger than that. And that right. you know, blaming oneself is is not particularly useful necessarily. It, you know, it can be right. really, really destructive. And again, a big part of the American myth, and it is a right. myth. Right. Rugged And well, indivi- That's what
1: I was trying. So my purpose really yeah. to your question is, I wanted to interrogate that myth.
0: Yeah. I mean, this rugged individualism has never been real. Ever. Ever. You know, (laughs) the the belief that, you know, with enough grit and determination, anything is possible. And as you say, the, the students who went to your school came in it with a lot more passion and focus right. than most kids, right I, I, right What is the related grit movement in education? what you know again, what do they mean by grit? I guess we're getting well, I think
1: you know it it doesn't come from a bad place, of course it it comes from a lot of you know psychological theory um, that is all good, right it, it's it's this idea of understanding persistence, understanding determination. You know, um, Carol Dweck wrote um, a growth mindset. You know, that's uh, she writes a lot about the importance of having a growth mindset as opposed to a deficit mindset. This idea that you know um, one can do work as opposed to one cannot. Or if we can help kids realize, um, you know, just if you say I'm bad at math or I can't do something, mm-hmm. you'll you'll um, if you will, when when kids say those kinds of things, they're almost predetermining right. that they won't be able to do those things. And, and then what Dweck writes about is how do we in classrooms better understand what it is for kids to have a growth mindset that sees themselves as capable of persisting through difficult tasks as opposed to giving up. And that's all really, really important. But what happened... With Angela Duckworth's theory, you know, she's really, um, in some ways, um, popularized grit. What happened was, at the same time as she was writing uh, the No Excuses quote, and I have quotes, Ed Reform Movement, were picking all that stuff up, a lot of the No Excuses schools, and they were sort of making that a centerpiece of their schools. If we teach kids to be have tons of grit, um, then they'll do fine in school. And that's a very simplistic approach. Again, you can't do well in life or in school if you don't have some tenacity and some grit and if you don't know how to persist through tasks. But that is not the be all end all. And so I'm trying to get folks to say, make it more complicated, people. You know, Mm -hmm. for many of my students, it just takes grit and tenacity to show up in school every day. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge step (laughs) towards learning, just getting to school. And then we have to help kids understand a lot of the structural barriers that are already set up against them. And if we don't do that and we just say it's all about your personal grit, then what does that mean about how we're trying to dismantle structural racism and the systemic barriers that exist in our society—it it takes us off the hook, and that's very, very dangerous.
2: Well,
0: wow, preserving structural barriers—I mm, can see that, and I know, having been a student in high school myself, there were certain things I was not particularly good at. I'm glad mm-hmm. there are people who can do math really well, who can do science really well, and who can be doctors. That's not my talent, you know. I could apply all kinds of grit to that direction, but. I th- I'm convinced everybody has something to contribute yeah, to the Yeah, I lives.
1: would agree, but I I think what we have to it's not just about what I was trying to explore is it's not just about I'm not interested in science or math or I'm not interested in going in that direction but for a lot of kids and the and one of the examples I give I think it's really important that we understand these these nuanced examples. So one of my students that I write about Ashley you know, she was unable, because of money, to take the end run that so many kids take in college, which was the hard chemistry course in summer school. Because her scholarship didn't afford her that opportunity. So she could have as much grit as the next person, but she couldn't drop that class and take it in the summer. Like so many kids do, we call that you know the summer school organic chem route and and i 'm in this book trying to expose some of that because I believe she was as gritty as the next person, as hard working as the next person, and it wasn't that she didn't have talent for math and science, she didn't have the same advantages uh-huh. to do it that way, and that's what i'm trying to to pull out here is that we've set up systems that double jeopardize kids who are poor, kids who are first-generation college kids, and often kids who are black and brown. That's really what I'm trying to call out here.
0: The book is called When Grit Isn't Enough. A high school principal examines how poverty and inequality thwart the college for all promise. There's a lot to talk about there, and I wonder how the— belief, you know, the widespread belief in pull yourself up by the bootstraps actually can do a disservice to students. Right. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. How does it Well, do that's what
1: students? I've I'm 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 saying. So in in Ashley's case, you know, she gets seen as someone who didn't pull herself up by her bootstraps because she had to drop out of college. She now has, you know, quite substantial loans that she has right. to repay because she had to drop out. And she's considered not gritty enough when, in fact, the real story is she wasn't afforded an opportunity that kids with more means, more money in this mm. case, are afforded. And so I, I think that's what I'm trying well, to expose too. here is we have different rules for different folks based on social class, based on um, family background, often based on who your parents were, and um, uh, your race. And if we don't come to terms with that uh, as a society, I worry deeply about our democracy, because I think we so shove off the responsibility to the individual and just say, well, that person wasn't gritty enough, or that Mm -hmm. person didn't work hard enough, Mm -hmm. or that person wasn't smart enough, when in fact the... um, you know, the dice were rolled against them from the beginning. Yes. And that's, I think, what, you know, this whole deep understanding of when we talk about equity, what does it really mean? It means that folks who haven't had the same opportunities as perhaps you or I might get uh, an added step in their stool, if you will, an added boost. And we have such difficulty in this country um Uh, uh, saying that that's important. You know, that's why we had affirmative action, because we believed at some point that we needed to give people who hadn't had prior opportunities or exposure a a, a little more help. And and I think if we don't keep considering that, we're going to be in trouble, because I believe deeply that my students, who are first generation and who are primarily black and brown kids, Mm -hmm. Have every bit as much of a a right and obligation to get to college and stay there as anybody else who may be third generation college going.
0: And as you know, I mean, there's so much backlash now against things like affirmative action. Right. Right. And the idea of, you know, helping government actually helping students and to, right. to level the playing field a little bit. And that, right. that's very... Well, that's great. what's so...
1: Fr- I mean, I didn't know when I was reading this book, obviously, that Trump was going to be president. Right. But just to think that, you know, today's headlines all about, you know, now we're going to cut welfare all over again mm-hmm. um, and food stamps, you know, I just think that this notion, government's job is to care for the most vulnerable. And um, we are really deeply stepping away from that. And that frightens me, because I believe that we are a very, very diverse society. You know, in terms of our schools today, now we are a majority-minority population Mm -hmm. in our schools. Mm -hmm. So we are no longer you know, mostly white kids in our schools. And so we have an obligation as a nation to deeply understand the experiences and the backgrounds and the needs of all of those populations. And so in writing this book, I'm trying through stories um, to uh, illustrate some of that and to give the reader an opportunity to say, wait a minute, (laughs) isn't there another way to think about this? Don't we want, in fact, to encourage the Rauls and the Ashleys to, in fact, finish school, to get a degree because they will be more productive going forward? So that's one of my arguments. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I do, of course, make some arguments about the importance of career and technical education, which we have so thrown under the carpet and so many, you know, thrown out with a bat- baby with the bathwater,
0: I guess, mm-hmm. is the way I'd say it. Kind of giving we're in trouble in this country, and oh yeah giving, yeah giving that second class you know attitude and and you write about uh, where is it places like uh, uh, I think it's uh, Denmark and other countries right. oh yeah Denmark, Switzerland, and Germany it's not considered second best to an no, academic education no, vocationally no. And, and go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I you know, we're not going to be Denmark, Switzerland, or Germany, that's for sure. But I do think, you know, we have such a level of snobbery in this country that, you know, uh, we're the best and we don't look anywhere else. God, I, I think it would behoove us to really keep studying what's going on in those countries in terms of their ability to, to um, really do a great job with what they may call apprentice training. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is not second-class at all it's very much on par with university training and i think our high schools need to do a much better job of giving kids preparation uh, to explore career opportunities And technical skills before college. As as some of the kids I interviewed said, you know, college is a very expensive way to grow up. And, you know, (laughs) wouldn't it be nice if we had a better sense leaving high school about uh, what we wanted to do when we went to college? And you know, one of the thoughts I had, this too may be way too radical for where we are in this time in our nation, but, you know, what about a year of service work between mm-hmm. high school and college? You know, imagine if all kids did that and if that was really the American way. You know, some kids might want to join the military. That's okay. Other, That's a service. Other kids might want to do deep community service. Other kids may want to apprentice, in, yes. you know, in an industry. But what if we really could organize in a way that kids really have a chance? Maybe it's part of their high school experience and not after high school. But I I deeply believe kids need more exposure to career and technical training while they're still in those early um, adolescent years. You know, starting as early as 12 or 13, I think kids need to be exposed to what's out there and what are the possible career paths and um, interests that they might
0: have. Mm. You know, and and I know the people on the right, which there seem to be a lot more of these days, I guess it's always been there, it's just kind of been hidden, saying that, you know, that they have this belief that uh, it's just keeping people uh, on welfare, by helping people. Of course, it doesn't work that way. And what seems to be, as what you're saying, backing up, that by narrowing the paths, by by saying, you know, you got to go to college. This is it. Uh, if you don't follow that path, then phew, you're just falling by the right. wayside. And, you know, right. I believe, I mean, I think public service, doing a, perhaps a year of community service and apprenticeship, you know, apprenticeship yeah. used to be fairly common for young people entering right. the trade. Right.
1: And I, you know, I know the argument against it would be well, we're a post industrial society. How would we ever organize that? But, you know, I think even in a state like, you know, New Hampshire, where you are small enough, right, and there is so much um, interest, I think, in New Hampshire, and I think you call it ELOBs there, your um, um, Extra Learning Opportunities Program or External Learning Opportunities Program. I actually think it's a statewide initiative Uh where um, New Hampshire may be one of the few states that encourages young people for credit to do uh, apprenticeships and projects and learn alongside professionals. And I think there's all sorts of ways we could implement that in our schools, but we have to have a less rigid sense of what K-12 education should look like. And, you know, maybe New Hampshire is the place because it's small enough that we could try some of this on.
0: Well, I hope people from other states, if they're listening, take a look at that. I frankly did not know about that program. Yeah, I a-
1: think it's been, I think New Hampshire's actually been one of the more interesting states in terms of, you know, it may have come from not having enough resources in school, so right. school people went outside and said, well, what if? But I visited some small rural high schools there where kids are actually doing interesting things outside of the classroom with the fish and wildlife um, folks um, you know looking at environmental issues um, I, I think it would be very interesting to look at a small state like New Hampshire and say what are the ways that we could ensure that our kids in as part of their curriculum are really looking at career and technical kinds of experiences that um, would lead them to better define what they'd like to do when they finish high school, and then college.
0: And you're making me think that maybe uh, we could actually connect with people on the right who don't like, you know, common core, and I certainly did not like. uh, 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 (laughs) That would be interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. Well, no child left behind. One size doesn't fit all. You know, yeah. one size. If that's is,
1: what, if that's what, if you will, the right is saying, <laughs> I would agree because one size doesn't fit all.
0: No, it really doesn't, and we're not doing our students and our own future a disservice. Never mind, you know, being nice to to poor people. You know, it's in our interest to have a stronger economy and to have yeah. you know people fitting in and being able to take care of themselves and. There's many different ways of doing that. There are yes. those who congratulate the Boston Arts Academy community for its part in preparing the two-thirds of its graduates who yes. go on to graduate college. But you're, yes. not, you're not sure congratulations are in order. Why?
1: Well, I mean, they are in order, obviously, and I think the percentages since I finished the book are even higher. Um, but, you know, when you step down from doing something that, you've done well and that you love and that you're proud of, you know, you have to look at the other side. And so the question that that I was examining is, what about the other third that don't graduate from college? And then what about the two-thirds that are going on to college? What is their experience? And what is their experience racially? And what is their experience socioeconomically? What is their experience in this world beyond high school. And so that's what a lot of my questions were.
0: And, and what about actually graduating? I mean, a lot of, I don't know what the percentages would be, how many students are start college and then can't afford it. Well, that it. was the,
1: the two-thirds is the percentage ah. that we're graduating. So uh-huh. of the kids we sent, and this is uh, data from, you know, the mid about 2009-10, we were sending a lot of kids on to college, you know, 85%, 90 95%, mm-hmm. and two-thirds of them were finishing uh-huh. between four and six years, which is well above the national standard. Sure. So it's The statistics are fabulous. But my question, you know, since it's such a great school, I wanted to ask, but is that good enough? You know, should we, if you're sending 95% on, should 95% be finishing, right? The same percentage that you're sending should be finishing. And what's happening to those who don't? And as I say, you know, so much of this has to be in the context of what's going on nationally. Those are phenomenally high statistics nationally. But I wanted to take a critical look and say, what are some of the reasons that, Kids are not. And so that's what led to the development of these five myths about money and race and grit and this sense that, you know, everyone should go to college.
0: Again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Linda Nathan. Her new book is When Grit Isn't Enough. A high school principal examines how poverty and inequality thwart the college for all promise. And there are five key assumptions that have driven modern school reform. You come to the conclusion that they're ultimately empty promises. What are those five, please?
1: Well, I, I you know, I'm careful in saying empty promises. I'm saying these are myths that we hold up, and I put them in quotations. So the first chapter uh-huh. is money doesn't have to be an obstacle, and that's in quotations mm-hmm. because money— is a huge obstacle for so many kids. That may be an obvious statement to to make, but you know, in listening to my young people, they had lots of stories about how difficult m- money and paying for college and all of the things that come with that really are. And then, you know, I was writing this book after Obama was elected president, and so so many people talked about the United States being a post-racial society. And so that chapter is in quotes, race doesn't matter. Mm. As I said earlier, how could I have known that Trump was going to be elected president that we would have in the white house, someone who I think is deeply (laughs) deeply flawed and, and uh, has not been able to speak or to help us in any way heal as a society that I think is deeply racist. And so, you know, our, that chapter is in quotes. And I think for me, one of the most interesting things in interviewing the young people I interviewed was actually a white young girl who talked about how much race mattered for her on campus as a white person uh, because she could see, given the integrated high school she had come from, you know, what wasn't happening for so many of, of her peers who may not have been white, but black or brown kids. And then we've talked about this third chapter, Just Work Harder, this grit idea, and we've been talking a little bit about everyone can go to college. And then the last chapter is really about, if you, you know, I sort of come around and say, if you believe your dreams will come true, and I tell some really mm-hmm. wonderful stories about amazing kids who, despite all the odds... Uh, you know, one walked across Guatemala and, you know, went on to college and become an engineer. And, you know, I tell some amazing stories about very, very successful kids. And, you know, those tend to be the stories that we all hang our hats on. And um, so and that's, those are the chapters.
0: That's just not, I mean, those, those exceptional stories are exceptional stories, you know. It, yeah. So, I mean, it's like people with severe physical handicaps. Every now and then, sometimes they, they overcome them and do amazing things.
1: Right, but, right. And these are exceptional stories, because yes. we've had amazing performers who have starred with Alvin Ailey Dance Company. Sure. You know, lots of folks have heard of Diane Guerrero, who, um, you know, stars as Maritza in Orange is the New Black, ah. you know, the Netflix, and wow. she's written a wonderful book in The Country We Love, My Family Divided, about her own parents being deported um, you know, she she wasn't a, a DACA kid in that sense, but um, you know, she really has done. You know, she's been an incredible spokesperson for uh, you know the whole DACA movement and for kids born in this country um, without paper, if you will. Uh-huh. And so she's amazing, right? And but she'd be the first to say to me, you know, don't make it about my exceptionalism. Right. Make it about the network that uh-huh. uh, was able to develop to to support me and. You know the high school that I went to, Boston Arts Academy, was a huge part of that network because um, you know we really kept her in school. So it is, it is it, always when you hear about these individual cases, um, we tend to mythologize them and yeah. not look at the deep network surrounding those those cases. So I think that's what I'm I'm trying to get us to think about.
0: And when you talk about networks. I can see it as a good thing. It sounds like you see it as a good thing. But there are people these days who, who refer to something called a nanny state and how bad that is and kind of any kind of network at all. You know, they're just down on because it does it, it, it actually dares to take on the myth of rugged individualism. Right. Right. And yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, I... and, and and, you know, this whole race doesn't matter. You know, it would be so nice if it were true, but I—I got to tell you, I was so naive. I actually thought the election of Barack Obama would be an historic and significant blow against racism. I was yeah. so wrong. Uh, yeah, and well, I think a lot of people shared,
1: you know, your euphoria too. that, um, you oh. know, finally, finally. But I think, yeah. you know, I think that's what I'm hoping this book kind of helps us see that unless we are working hard to um, really dismantle systemic racism.
0: Right, which leads to my next question. What what does the anti-racist education you champion look to do, mm-hmm, and how? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think it's, you know, I don't have simple answers for that. I think
0: there aren't um, any. yeah.
1: part of it is, you know, how do we interrogate whiteness? How do we help white people understand their privilege? And I know that is so unpopular because, you know, I can hear the rebuttal from poor white people okay. saying, you know, I didn't get any handouts. I didn't get any privilege, but in this country built on slavery, built on the backs of black people, uh, white people do have privilege and If we're going to dismantle racism, we have to come to grips with that, and that is not easy for people. Um, There's a play that is happening in Boston that Company One is producing called Hype Man, H-Y-P-E Man, and it happens to star three of my alums from Boston Arts Academy. They're all professional actors. And it is one of the best plays I have ever seen. It's by Idris Goodwin. And it really is interrogating whiteness, white privilege, relations, interracial relationships, what it means to be in this world as a black person, as a white person, as a biracial in person. It is, we need so much more. It's such an excellent play. And I encourage listeners to go see it if you can. It's only through the end of February. We need so many more experiences in our communities, in our schools, in, in uh, our culture to help us understand how complex race is. You know, I think what worries me is so many people in our schools just say, I don't see race. Well, right. It's not helpful. Right. Right? Oh, I know. We need to see race, and we need to make sure that we are helping white people, black people, brown people, all colors of people, understand the history of racism in this country
0: yes we really history do we're built on oh, no question about it and i should mention that this you know a lot of people listen to this on podcasts so they could be anywhere in the universe probably okay. mostly mostly okay. on earth but elsewhere as well if they want to Okay. <laughs> this is podcast but uh uh you know and the idea people people have said to me oh i'm too focused on race you know like they, like they want to pretend there's not an issue there but you know yeah. to to sweep it under the rug you know it doesn't fix anything what about you know another thing that's going on these days is uh, attacks on teacher autonomy i see right. great pressure uh to to rein in teacher autonomy and to have you know just standards and very you know limited uh, ability of teachers to be autonomous what's your view on this
2: mm. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, everything in this country is always a, the pendulum swings from one end to another, right? Yeah. So I think um, with the advent of high-stakes testing and um, really thinking that the way we were going to fix education was through giving teachers or kids more tests to take, right. Um That may, (laughs) there's very little evidence that just by giving kids more tests, they're going to do better in schools. Um, But, so I don't know if I would say it's a question of teacher autonomy. I think it's a question of how, you know, education and schools are where we play out our deep schizophrenia (laughs) as a society about what we value. And so... um, as we brought more high-stakes testing to schools, we're saying we value, we say we value kids um, learning in very discrete bites of information. And I think that's a mistake, that what we really value, or what we need to value, is much more nuanced. We need to value kids reading critically and kids doing complex problem-solving. We need to value how we support kids getting along and understanding differences. And, you know, I've often argued that the best way to do that is through a very rich arts curriculum, Mm -hmm. that that's one of the best ways, particularly for young people to understand differences. If you sing in another person's language, if you have to um, dance or do a, a theatrical production that really represents a different culture, That will give you a lens that you didn't have before. So So I think what's happened, what you're calling autonomy, I might call shrinking the curriculum Uh so that it's very narrow and defined by going through some very discrete hoops um, that don't give kids as much of a rich um multi-layered, multi-faceted curriculum and that's what we really need. We need kids reading all sorts of books, both fiction and non writing all sorts of writing, both, you know, fiction and non-fiction kind of writing. We need kids deeply immersed in thinking about problem-solving and problem-posing mm. and you know, our a rich science curriculum gives that, a quantitative curriculum helps with that. Someone, I mentioned Carol Dweck earlier, and I heard her say the other day, I loved this, she said, if a doctor came back from 100 years ago to a hospital today, that doctor wouldn't even recognize the hospital, it's so different. But if a teacher from 100 years ago came back today, schools look exactly the same. That's scary.
0: That is scary. That's a really interesting uh, perspective on it. Yeah. And you know, as you say, I mean, just narrowing education—just it does not it, it's not good for kids. And all no. you know, so much of the focus these days seem to be on back to basics, math right. and science proficiency, and right. our arts right. tend to be seen as kind of superfluous. Well, you can cut that out. You point out the quote: "Right now, if you grow up poor in the city." You can also be guaranteed you will not receive education in music, visual arts, theater, dance, or creative writing. I think this right. is a travesty. Tell us right. more why. Why is that a travesty?
1: Well, because what I was trying to describe, I think what the arts gives us is a unique way to engage through emotion with one another and to engage across cultures, across perceived barriers, across language. You know, my background is early on with um, ELL, uh, English as a Second Language Kids. And, you know, working with theater is such an amazing way to develop vocabulary and to think about how we can learn another language. So for me, you think about also, um, I've heard uh, Gustavo Dudamel, who's a sort of famous um, graduate of the El Sistema music program from Venezuela, and now he's the conductor of the L.A. Phil, and he talks about how in Venezuela, you know, deeply politicized country, yeah. and but if you're in the orchestra, even if you're in different sides of a political struggle, mm-hmm. you got to all play together. You're, yeah. That's how you're judged, uh-huh. how well you play together, not how well you play separately. Yeah. And I think the arts give us unique opportunities to do that well. You know, some people say sports do too, but I think sports are much more competitive and individualistic in nature. Playing in an orchestra is a collaborative uh, endeavor. Singing in a choir is a collaborative endeavor. Most theater and dance are not solo performances, but they're things that we do together. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that ability to learn to work collaboratively is something, that's what, you know, everyone says in the workforce they they need. Employees ah, who know how to work collaboratively, who know how to work with people who are different from them, who know how to solve problems collaboratively. We need the arts to help us do that, and we need the arts to help give our kids a sense of beauty. Beauty is something we need more of in this world, not less
0: of. Yeah, <laughs> that seems to be... The case, for sure, what about uh you know one of the things that's going on in terms of education these days is for profit schools I see them advertised mm-hmm. on t v and they're clearly yeah, aimed at yeah. lower income students
1: How, yeah yeah talk about, yeah yeah, and I do tell a story in the book of one of my young people who sadly went that route, and mm-hmm. you know what happened to him is you know he was left with nothing, literally nothing you know i I worry deeply that in our new regime here with Betsy DeVos that, you know, she's going to go right back in and recertify all those schools that under Obama were actually decertified Mm -hmm. because uh, they were doing such a bad job, um, you know, taking federal dollars because that's what they do and uh, not graduating kids, you know, huge promises that are empty. So I think, you know, maybe there's a few examples of for-profit schools that do a good job. Mm. I I didn't find them. And uh, I certainly found how detrimental they were to my kids' experiences.
0: Oh, I'm sure. And since you brought up our wonderful Education Secretary, Betsy DeVos, uh, it does seem that she fits in with all uh, President Trump's appointees they all seem to focus on taking down the goals yeah. of the institution. They are yeah. traditionally there to serve. Uh, I, I, you know, given that context, I suppose I shouldn't be shocked by Betsy DeVos, but I am. She's amazing. Yeah. What would you say to Betsy DeVos if you met her? What recommendations yeah. would you make on behalf of your former students and the students of yeah. the future? Yeah, Have fun with that. Yeah, have fun
1: with that. Oh, God. I mean, I think maybe I'd try to start with a place where I think she'd agree, which is career and technical education. So I think I would say, how can we um, bring more of that to both middle school and high school? Because I, I think, like you said earlier, you know, given that she's most likely an anti-common core person, I think I'm, I might suggest a place where we could agree. Uh-huh. So what would it be like if, you know, we weren't, our, our structures were more porous, more open, and if we could ensure that kids really did get to explore various pathways while still in high school. So I think, you know, cause it doesn't do any good to just say, here's all the places we disagree. So I think I would start right. there. Good point. I also think she might really agree with the service idea. Uh-huh. So what would, what would you say about how more kids could have a semester of service work. What might that look like and how could we work together to create that? So I would start with those two ideas as a place um, where we would agree. And then I also think this would probably be too technical, but I might also ask, you know, how could we shore up our community colleges, particularly in the Northeast? Um, And maybe I could even say something complimentary about community colleges in her home state, but I think community colleges have such an important role to serve in our country. Um, And so I might start there and say, you know, could we think about um, opening up community colleges so that um, they provide more opportunities for young people and that we don't use... Acuplacer, which is what I talk about in the book, as a way to um, pigeonhole kids. Uh-huh. So if you don't get a certain score on this test, you only can go in developmental classes. You never can take college level classes. I think Betsy DeVos would agree with that. You know, she wouldn't like that. So I, I would start with those three places where I bet we'd we'd agree.
0: That would be a good thing. That would be a good thing. And it makes me think of the, I don't know if they still do it this way in uh, the formerly Great Britain, when they have two different tiers of education. I, you know, I, I, that seems to be pigeonholing kids, too. You know, one is going to be working class forever, and the other right. is going to get out of Well, eat. that's the worry
1: about, you know, as I celebrate career and technical ed, I think that's really mm-hmm. the worry that our history We used to call it vocational education, and it certainly was um, the the track for the poor kids, right? right? And then it was the track for the poor black and brown kids. So I think you know, we have to be very, very vigilant of making sure that career and technical education is every bit as robust and, if you will, rigorous as the college track, because, you know, in this day and age, a technical two-year degree uh, can be very complex. You know, it's not just um, as it was, you know, in the 19th century. We are in a very complex time. Um, But kids, many, 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 many kids learn with their hands as well as their minds.
0: Mm. I think Betsy
1: DeVos would agree with
0: that. Interesting. Well, maybe there is some, I mean, you got to get places where you uh, overlap and and, and work together on that. And, uh, you know, back, I remember, I mean, my parents valued education. I was really lucky. I was in the Middle class. We used to have a middle class in America. Really. People don't believe it, but there was a middle class. You and your husband frequently told your children, money isn't everything, but only the freedom of having money allows us to say such a thing.
1: That's exactly right.
0: In what unexpected ways does not having sufficient money impact students from poor backgrounds? What unexpected ways?
1: Well, I think, you know, this is what I try to write about uh, with Raul's story, is that You know, if you didn't grow up understanding the nuance of how you pay for college, you know, many people in reading his story say, well, how did he not notice that he didn't have money for housing? Well, if that's not part of your dinner table conversation, you would not notice that. So in his case, the unexpected way Uh is that he gets to college and has to take out a loan really quickly to pay for housing. And that would never have happened to my own children or to most upper middle-class kids. So I think we, we really forget that you almost these days just to do the federal, the FAFSA forms, the financial aid forms, those are such complex forms for so many people Hmm. that uh, you almost need a PhD to do that. Hmm. So I think that's what I'm trying to uh, expose there that, um, we need a lot more guidance support in our schools, a lot, you know, it's 300, 400 kids per guidance counselor now. That is not good. What? I, I would want Betsy DeVos to fund that better. You know, look at the ratios in our schools and to say we really need schools, not the nonprofits, but schools need to be supporting um, guidance, guidance work. That is the work of schools. We've so allowed that to be siphoned off to nonprofits now. That really scares me.
0: Oh, that is. I different. want
1: guidance work to belong in schools.
0: I'd say so. And you reminded me, Mike. I have a niece who's doing that, and she is so burnt out. She's really good at it. She loves her work, but there's way, the workload is just crazy.
1: Right. How many kids is her? How many? I she have?
0: I don't know exactly. But when you say like 400,
1: that's oh yeah. my. You know, just, that means you really can't do anything. You can't for do kids, anything. Right? I mean, that's the trouble. So, you know, we have to really rethink how we do advising in our secondary schools. And and I, I would want a deep look at that because, you know, we can't continue this sort of factory model of schools that we're just sort of pushing kids through. You know, some will end up going to four year colleges, some will go to two year but we're not really paying attention in a deep way to what our kids really need. They need a whole lot more advising than we're giving them in schools. And, you know, some families can do that because right. they've had a lot of experience with college themselves. Yeah. We have a growing population of kids and families that this is their first time around with that. Yeah. And that's what makes this country great. I mean, I think, you know, everyone's seen the news headlines of... The new president of harvard and he um he's so proud of being the son of immigrants you know that's what this country was based on our country was formed for the most part by immigrants so you know that's also who's in our schools we need to support that
0: and it is in our interest it's not you know I mean, people say well they got half a loaf that's better than no loaf but if you're going to do it you got to do it, you know, and, it, yeah. and 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 to leave so many kids out in this this guidance thing, as you say, you know, there are different directions for people, plugging yeah. people in, making the most of who they are, that's yeah. a good yeah. thing, and you know, there is this widespread belief that college is expensive, but it's a good investment, uh,
2: yeah.
0: uh, that the popular belief that going to college ultimately pays for itself and then some, with increased salaries and employability, uh, I. Do, do statistics still bear that out? I Well, I think it. it is true that, yes, That you, let, let's say it this way. If you
1: go to college, the statistics bear out that the probability that your salary will be higher if you go and you finish. That's what the statistics still tell us. However, um, the statistics also tell us that just because you go to college doesn't mean you're going to get a good job with your college degree. So I am not trying to say fewer kids should go to college. I am not trying to say that Mm -hmm. I'm trying to say, let's make sure we give kids the preparation for college without pigeonholing Mm -hmm. and also give them the preparation for making more sophisticated career choices. And that's where I feel like my students said to me, um, you needed to do better you needed to provide us more there and i'm i'm very very proud cuz boston arts academy now since i stepped down and ann clark is the new headmaster she has developed two career and technical um, pathways. One is in fashion design, and the other is in visual communications. Visual communications and design. So, kids now from the Boston Arts Academy will be graduating. Some percentage of the kids with vocational, career, and technical certifications in those fields where there are jobs. So that's terrific. I, I'm really thrilled that a school uh, like the Arts Academy has been able to expand and change its focus a little bit Mm -hmm. to say we are going to also work very deeply um, in career preparation. Our musicians now do a lot of career preparation in the recording industry, and they really learn about um, that field, which is booming. So I think I'm not saying that kids shouldn't go on to college, but I am saying I want kids to go much more aware of what their career opportunities are and much more experienced with particular pathways before getting there.
0: And uh, I will uh, acknowledge right off that uh, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter, and he uh, talked a lot and connected with kids about their student debt. I, you know, I sometimes go to different rallies and he'd ask how many kids have have debt. Right. I was amazed. that How many kids have really large debts? What a... That
1: was something that I think, you know, Obama really tried, and obviously, you know, Sanders was trying, too, in raising this. Even Hillary Clinton talked about this. I, you know, this would be an interesting, to go back to your Betsy DeVos question, what would her stand on this be? Has uh-huh. she been asked directly, what about student debt, and what do we do about that? Yeah. Um, because it's going to cripple. So it It is crippling so many people and making them... Unproductive, you know. So I would think the Trump DeVos administration would would want to change that and would want to do something to allow for um, young people or, uh, to be able to do something about that. That 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 may not always be, um, if you will, their fault. I mean, that's what's complex about it because people say to me, "Well, Raúl didn't have to." Sign that loan, you know that uh, loan. He didn't uh, have to take out that loan for housing. Well, he had a free, you know, he had a scholarship to college. So of course he was going to continue, and he didn't have the background to understand what was going what it was going to mean to keep taking out loans to keep taking out loans. Right,
0: right. people, yeah, you know, they people rarely understand all the legalese that's in these contracts.
1: Right. right. <laughs> So we do have to do something about loan forgiveness. I mean, yeah. we, really, yeah, we really, really do. do. Yeah. But I think we also have to do something to rein in the cost of college. Yeah. It is ridiculous that the cost of college is upwards of 70000 oh. a year now. So you know, mm. what do we do about that? Oh, my God.
0: Well, in, in coming up with, with solutions, what we can do from here, rather than college for all, you argue for career and college for all. I you wonder know. if we could paint a picture of what that would look like, and then then how do we get there?
1: Yeah, I just was in this wonderful high school um, outside of Boston, Medford High School, and I got to spend the morning in their career and technical program, and it was so exciting to be in um, a business marketing class where all the kids were thinking about, you know, what does it take to be an entrepreneur, and one of them was actually – I think trading in bitcoins, I was like, oh, my God, this is so terrific. There were other kids who do, were learning about childcare. Others were learning about the you know, they were working in their restaurant. Others were doing um, cosmetology, and people were coming in to get their hair done. I mean, it was a very vibrant um, scene in a comprehensive high school, and all kids in that school are given the opportunity when they enter high school to do um, rotations in career and technical fields, And that's what I, that's the picture I would paint is, I really think all kids should have those opportunities. And the the, um, Mm. overemphasis on you have to take and pass seven AP classes has gotten us into trouble. Because, you know, what if we also have to take, uh, uh, design and visual communications class. You know, this is such a digital world. What if we all have to learn to change a tire? What if we all have to learn something um, about other fields that we may not have even considered? Hmm. That's what I'm. That's the picture I'm trying to paint. Is is I think um, we have really uh, taken career and vocational education and put it in only a few places rather than asked, how could this be more of every high school kid's um, learning experience?
0: I'm going to I think it was an ad for the Army, be all that you can be. And <laughs> <laughs> we're not necessarily thinking of the Army on this, but uh, what kids can be. And I can think of so many examples, you know, of, of students who, you know, because there was all this pigeonholing and only this way to measure success – that kids who have other talents, those talents are just left by the wayside and not plugged right, in. Right, and it's right. just, it's it's such a shame. Right. At the political... I think the other
1: way to say it is how can we create high schools where kids have multiple entry points for success, and what would that look like? Right. And, you know, not everyone wants to do... Um, you know, uh, close reads of, of of history or math or science, but and that's okay. Everyone should have a, a baseline. But I do think all high schools should give kids the opportunity to learn about various careers. I, I think that that is, and not just in a career class. I'm not talking about mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. but real hands-on project-based learning where you can build things, where you can create things, where you can make things. You know, this whole makerspace movement in some ways is really interesting because it's Mm. about getting tools back into the curriculum. I I read a great piece a while ago about, you know, what happened to shop class. And that's a good Uh question Uh because kids need to work with tools. Lots of kids, that's where they find that they get excited. And uh, too many of our high schools... Are devoid, if you will, of shop class.
0: Yeah, and that you you learn a lot—not just how to use the tools, but it, there's so many obviously different, unexpected things that that you learn there. Working together right. sometimes, and just. Uh, yeah, I, I can see how uh, there's so many opportunities. And I like what you said about we need multiple entry points for success. I think that, right. that that's sounds, what we all want, right? That sounds like the key, that we all can do it, we all can contribute. The book is called When Grit Isn't Enough. A high school principal examines how poverty and inequality thwart the College for All Promise, Linda Nathan. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh,
1: thanks let, so much for having me.
0: Well, let's hope a lot of your ideas get to be reality. I think. All right. Starting thank to, you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a good idea not to make promises you can't keep. Here's Tim Hardin talking about that?
2: It seems the songs we're singing are all about tomorrow. Tunes of promises you can't keep Every moment bringing A love I can only borrow You're telling me lies in your sleep Do you think I'm not aware Of what you're saying Or why you're saying it Is it hard to keep me where you want me staying? Don't go on betraying. Don't make promises you can't keep. We had a chance to find it. Our time was now or never. Promise me things that I need. But then the things behind it took away the chance forever. You're telling me lies in your sleep. Do you think I'm not aware of what you're saying? Why you're